Well, good morning. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 if you have a Bible. And you might notice um, that you're going to hear kids hooting and hollering and screaming in that kids area behind us today. At the very end of our service for about the last 10 minutes or so, our older kids are going to be joining us in here. And for the last eight weeks, they've been studying the armor of God. And so they're going to come in and share some of that. They've built pieces of the armor. So they're practicing right now. So if in the middle of the message you hear screaming and hollering and people just going nuts, everything's okay over there. It's safe. It's secure. Um, They're just practicing for what they're going to share with us at the end of our service. So in Ephesians chapter 5, we're in week 3 of our series uh, that we've called Ghost Stories, where every year in the month of October, we look at different assets, characteristics, and roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives as followers of Jesus, just trying to bring clarity to things that are potentially unclear for followers of Jesus. And so we're going to move quickly this morning at a very rapid pace. So if you're a note taker, stretch out your fingers a little bit, because we, again, want to make sure we give ample time to our kids' ministry this morning as well. Stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, as this morning we're talking about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to camp. One verse this morning, verse 18, and Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this day, the privilege we have to gather in your house to study your Word and lift up your name, Jesus. And God, I pray now as we look at this concept that we see throughout the scriptures of being filled with the Spirit, that God, you would bring clarity to that which may be unclear. God, lay aside any preconceived ideas that we have around this, Lord, and I pray that we would hear very clearly and directly from the Word of God today. God, thanks for the privilege we have to gather as as family this morning. May Jesus, may he be made big among us today. As we hear from you, in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I've heard it said before that one of the most defining moments for a child is when they first learn that a stovetop burner is hot. And you've probably been there personally, maybe your children have been there, but remember those moments when you have just finished making a pot of macaroni and cheese, you've taken that hot pot off of the stove, and you immediately, as a parent, maybe you've been warned personally, you tell your child, do not touch the stove because it's hot. Because you want to try to protect them. You want to make sure that they don't do something that could physically harm them. And in that moment, as a child, you have two options. Option number one is you can believe what is true and what you've been told, or you can learn the hard way by touching that stovetop burner. And if you're like me, and I'm sure most of you are, because I know you, you learned the hard way when it came to a hot stovetop. But here's the deal. You know, after the first time I did that, I think I was about five or six years old, I never have touched a hot stovetop burner again my entire life on purpose. I've done it on accident. But I've never touched a hot stovetop on purpose. Why is that? Listen to this truth. If you're a note taker, I'd write this down. When you know something is true, it then changes how we live. If I know something to be true, then it's going to change how I live. Think about that when it comes to the Christian faith and Christian worldview. If I know something is true, then it should change how I interact and walk with Jesus. One phrase you may have heard before is this, that right theology leads to right living. 
And one thing that we try to do here at Living Hope to the best of our ability is make sure that we are equipping and discipling followers of Jesus in right theology, making sure then that that leads us to right living when it comes to our walk with Jesus. That's why we do this series on the Holy Spirit every year is because um, sadly, and I think sometimes uh, accidentally, many of us have been dragged into wrong theology when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And we want to make sure that we have right theology when it comes to the Holy Spirit so that we live correctly as followers of Jesus. I'm so thankful I got to listen to Pastor Joe's message last week on on the Holy Spirit, what it meant to to walk in the Spirit. That was so helpful for me. I I say this, and I don't say this because he's here, because most of the time I'm mean to him, all right? Hands down, Pastor Joe is one of my favorite preachers on planet Earth. Um, Often people will get asked, who's your favorite Bible teacher? And you're going to hear famous names, John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, all that stuff. That's okay. My favorite preacher is my associate pastor and one of my best friends. And I hope you feel that same way as well. I loved what he talked about last week, that that, that competing nature of the flesh and the spirit. And and I think one of the phrases he used was, um, my, my, my flesh has been trained by my sin nature. And I was driving out to his, his mom and dad's place on Monday morning, and he said that. I about came off the road. I was like, I've never thought of that before. That just totally good. Joe, good job, dude. That was, that was so helpful. But this week, I want to talk about something else that I think, man, being filled with the Spirit. If you're, we're honest, when we hear that phrase, if you have any kind of Christian worldview that's been shaped by any previous church or current church that you go to, the reality is, is we have so many preconceived ideas that I think they're wrong. And I think we've been fed some partial truths when it comes to this idea of being filled with the Spirit that are probably not correct. And so here's what I'm going to ask us to do today. Sometimes when we come to topics like this and we come from, man, by God's grace, this church is made up from a variety of backgrounds, people that come from different theological camps in their past church history, and that's all amazing. And by God's grace, we are gathered around the gospel and this mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. That's why we exist. But in that, we come with these preconceived ideas. Here's what I'm asking for you today. Whether you come from a conservative background, whether you come from more of a, maybe a Pentecostal background, no matter what your background with the Holy Spirit is, just leave it at the door for the next 15 minutes. And let's go to the scriptures together. And let's see, what does God's word actually teach about this important topic? And I think, here's what's going to be amazing. I'm going to get to the end of this, and you're going to be frustrated. And it's going to be frustration in a good way. All right, so stick, stick with me here. Ephesians is where we're camping today, one of, I believe, the most theologically rich New Testament books. But what's interesting to me is if you were to read this book from cover to cover, chapter 1 through chapter 6, is you're going to see that there's actually a very unique break that occurs here in verse 18. Because up to this point, all the way from 1-1 all the way through 5-17, Paul has really spent the majority of his time so far talking about here's what it means to be saved and here's why it's a beautiful thing that God allows us to be part of and invites us into. Then he spends the next few chapters talking about here's what it kind of looks like to be in the family of God and to actually walk with Jesus. And then in verse 18, it's like this break occurs where Paul just kind of interjects this this phrase of being filled with the Spirit. And then in verse 19 and through the rest of the book, Paul then tells us what it actually looks like to live and walk and being filled with the Spirit, what that actual overflow looks like in the book of Ephesians. Now, critical understanding today. So two points 
If you're a note taker, if you come from a different maybe background, write this stuff down. I think this is going to be helpful. Point number one is what being filled with the Spirit is not. What it's not. Now, follow with me here today. Look at the first part of verse 18 because I think Paul makes this abundantly clear. Let me read this to us again. Paul said this, Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. You might be thinking to yourself, what in the world does that have to do with being filled with the Spirit? Let me explain. Let me give you a couple little sub-points up here about what being filled with the Spirit is not. We're going to explain this together. First off is this. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that happens separate from salvation. Am I clear there? Being filled with the Spirit is something that does not happen separate from salvation. There's some theological tribes where they teach that in a moment you get saved Right, which we all believe that. Romans 10, 9 and 10. I confess my sins. I put my faith in Jesus. He's Lord of my life. And then there's theological tribes that would say, but then there has to be a moment that occurs later where you pray and then you would receive the Spirit of God. What's interesting is much of that idea actually comes from the first 19 chapters of the book of Acts. Actually, post chapter 19 of Acts, you don't really see that idea or phraseology, if we could call it that, used really anymore throughout the New Testament. That was a special time from Acts 1 through Acts 19 where God was birthing the early church, He was building the early church, and He did supernatural things in order to confirm the message. Let me make a very important, and again, we're getting a little more theology maybe than typically we do uh, in our messages here. I'm making an important distinction here. The moment you are saved, hear me, you now are immediately indwelt by the Spirit of God. I want us to make that clear. The moment you are saved as a Jesus follower, so you're a sinner, you repent, the Scriptures teach in Romans very specifically that the Spirit of Jesus immediately dwells within you. Let me give you an example here. Romans, verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. Now watch this. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, all right, so there's the distinction made. Look at the second part. If anybody doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Jesus. Paul makes that abundantly clear. The evidence of my belonging to Jesus, that I'm his child and part of his family, is that I have the indwelling of the Spirit in me. Now, in Acts 19 and previous that in the book of Acts, you're going to see where there were special instances where individuals, men and women, would have the Spirit that would fill them for a special task or purpose. But that was for a very short season, for a very intended task, and there was a reason behind it. So again, theologically, are we all clear? Salvation and the Spirit are one and the same. When I'm saved, I get the Spirit of God. If you can't tell, I'm a little passionate about this because I think it's so important and so mixed up in our churches today. Here's the second one, letter B. Being filled with the Spirit does not always produce supernatural gifts in the believer. That's typically where our mind goes when we think of this topic. Now, watch this. Oh, I'm about to get excited. This is so cool. In the New Testament, there's two words that are used for being filled, right? Lord, filled. There's two words that the New Testament writers could have used. One is a word that is always associated with a filling of the Spirit that results in supernatural activity. So think of prophecy. You probably read about that before in the Scriptures. Think of speaking in tongues. Those kind of things that maybe we're somewhat familiar with. That's one word that could have been used. Often the reason we associate that type of filling with the Spirit with supernatural activity 
is because of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came and filled the 12 apostles. And what did they do? They began speaking in tongues. Now, here's what's so cool. That word is exclusively used in the New Testament up to chapter 19 of the book of Acts. And you know what? After that chapter, it's gone. We don't see it anymore. It was used exclusively in those first 19 chapters, and then it's gone. So understand this. Up to those ch that chapter, God would specifically, intentionally, and specially fill men and women to validate and confirm the message of Jesus. That's why it was used. The writer of Hebrews talks about it this way, Hebrews chapter 2. He says, this salvation, that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. And then what happened? It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And at the same time, here it is. Here's what I'm talking about. God also testified by signs. He testified by wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts. That's that special filling of the Spirit to do what? To validate the message of the gospel. Here's the thing, friends. It was always temporary, and it was always uncontrolled. Up to Acts 19. Up to, after Acts 19, you don't see that word used anymore. If God had a special task and he wanted to validate the gospel, he would like sovereignly fill somebody. They didn't request it. It just happened. And then God would use them for a special task. Maybe that was speaking in a different language. Maybe that was prophesying in some capacity. Here's what's awesome. That's not the word Paul uses in Ephesians 5. That's where we get confused here. The word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 here in verse 18 is actually a word that means to submit yourself to the will of somebody else. Isn't that cool? You see, up to this point, Acts 19, where it stops, it was this uh, associated with supernatural acts. In Ephesians 5.18, used two times in the New Testament when associated with the filling of the Spirit, it means to submit yourself to the will of somebody else. It's not supernatural in the sense that we would think of it. It's simply submitting yourself to the will of the Spirit. That's frustrating, isn't it? Some people are like, I want to be filled with the Spirit so I can speak in German. That's not what's going on here. Paul says, submit to the will of the Spirit. That's it. Isn't that frustrating to you? I read that this week and I was like, dang it. I wanted to speak in Chinese or something cool. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Now, let's keep going here. Being filled with the Spirit is not an ecstatic experience. Can we all get on the same page on this one? Write this down. Don't equate emotion, experience, or feeling, or I'm sorry, emotion, experience, or feelings with being filled with the Spirit of God. Gracious. And hear me from a heart of love this morning. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Do not equate emotion feelings or experiences that you go through with being filled with the Spirit of God. Think about Paul and Barnabas when they're in the jail cell. I think Joe talked about this last week. In a jail cell, yet they're still singing with joy. I would say that they were submitted to the will of the Spirit, filled with His Spirit. And do you think in that moment that, that Paul like really thought, like, oh, this experience right here being in a jail cell surrounded by rats and big Roman guards, oh, I must be filled with the Spirit. No, but for some reason we have tricked ourselves, and the devil has tricked us, to thinking that we can be more full or less full of the Spirit of God. For some reason in our, our Western Christian music culture, let's call it out, send angry emails to joe at livinghopecolumbus.com. 
In our Western Christian music context, friends, this modern influence of emotional songs, that's fine. But don't equate emotion with a special filling of the Spirit. We don't get more or less of the Spirit of God. You got all of it when you got saved. None of us, oh gosh, you know, none of us have like this little valve on like our hip where like, the, like God drains out. And I got I to I get more of him, right? Can you imagine it doesn't work that way. So you got to carry a mop and soak God up because he escaped. God doesn't do that. <laughs> Scriptures teach that when you get saved, you get all of him. Everything for life and godliness, all of Jesus. I don't get half of him and half later. I get all of him right now. Now, I want to show us what Paul's talking about here and why I think this ecstatic experience theology is dangerous and it's wrong. All right, track with me here. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. Leads to reckless living. That's random, isn't it? Read up to this verse, verse 17. And Paul's talking about right living with Jesus, salvation found in Jesus, and then randomly, hey, by the way, don't get drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. Keep living as a Christian. You read that and you're like, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? It's almost like this doesn't fit in the larger picture of the book of Ephesians. But here's what's so neat to me, and I, I verified this with a few different theologians. I've never really studied this before. You study like this culture during the time, not only was Judaism uh, making a rise in popularity, and obviously Christianity was rising in popularity this time, but also mythology was very popular. It's where we get Greek religion, Roman, uh, Roman mythology, Greek mythology. Uh, two, two gods very popular in this region of Ephesus were Artemis, which you've probably heard of before. Diana is the, the Roman name. The other one is a, a god named Bacchus. That's the Greek name. Or Dionysus is the actual Roman name of this, this Roman god, mythology. Here's what's interesting about Dionysus. Is Dionysus was the god of wine. You see where we're going here? Dionysus, it's believed, you can study Roman mythology, that in order... Whew, in order to get filled with Dionysus, what did you have to do? You had to consume wine. The more you consumed, the more Dionysus filled you. So it was very common for believers in this God to get uncontrollably drunk. And they believed then that Dionysus would interact with their mind, will, and emotions and let them know the path in which they needed to go on. It's also believed that you could drink so much that they actually created vats. John MacArthur talks about this, vats where people could go and vomit up their wine in order to drink more because you wanted to be filled with this God. You see where Paul's heading here? Remember in Acts chapter 2 when the apostles were filled with the Spirit of God and the crowd of people came by and saw them early in the morning? What did they say to them? Acts 2 verse 4. It says they were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues. Jump down to verse 13. But the crowd walks by and sneers and mocks them and says what? They're drunk with new wine. The crowds look at the disciples and go, my goodness, these so-called the way followers, these so-called followers of Jesus have stooped to Gentile pagan religious practice in order to be filled so-called with their so-called God, this so-called Jesus the assumption was that if you were speaking, if you've ever been around somebody who's been um, intoxicated before, you've seen this. Your language changes the way you speak and your demeanor changes completely. So the assumption was with these disciples that what had they done? They had drunk so much wine that they were just now being controlled by their 
God. That's not what Paul's talking about. That verse is not random. Paul says, look, Gentile Ephesian believers, you've stepped out of paganism. And so if I tell you to be filled with the Spirit, I am not talking about the pagan religion you came from. Instead, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Verse 18, second half. What does that actually mean for you and I? One definition. To be directed, to be influenced, and ultimately led by God's Spirit. It's that simple. Directed, influenced, and led by the Spirit of God. In context, friends, again, don't take just one verse and and try to develop a theology from it. Read it in the context of the entire Scripture. In context, what do we see here? Paul is reminding these believers that if you want to be filled with the Spirit of God, it simply means you live in submission to the Spirit of God. How do I do that? This is where it's frustrating. Through the Word of God. It's that simple. Being filled with the Spirit of God simply means that I submit myself to the authority of the Word of God and allow it to change me. We say, I want to be filled with the Spirit. Read the Word and submit to it. I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. Read the Word and submit to it. It's not an ecstatic experience that I have to conjure up through some kind of music and activity. It's not that. No, no, no. I read the Word and I let the Word change me, and I let the Spirit change me. Let me, let me give you one more illustration, and we're going to bring our kids here in, in, in just a moment. I like to think of it this way. Think of when you uh, buy a kite. If you go at the end of summer and you get a kite on sale, kites typically come packaged up, right? They come in a very small plastic bag, and they're all sealed up, packaged up real nice and tight. If you were to take that kite tie a string onto the end of that package, leave everything in the package, go out in the middle of a field on a windy day, take that kite, throw it up into the air. What's going to happen? It's going to fall on the ground. What has to happen for a kite to function? It has to open up. Once you get a kite to open up, that wind can do its work in in that kite. And that wind can make that kite soar. Here's the difference between, between being not filled with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit we got so many Christians at the way, and I do this all the time. This, here's how I approach God. God, this is my life. God, this is my stuff. God, these are my plans. God, this is my time. And for lack of a better term, we live so crunched up as Christians, tight-fisted, everything close to the chest. God, this is mine. And here's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. God, it's all yours. You tell me what your word wants me to do. Father, I will read it, and then you let your spirit blow through me, and you take me wherever you want to go. I know I have all of him, but I'm opening myself up to it. Colossians 3.16 says to let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. That's what it means to be filled with the spirit. And friends, I came to that conclusion this week through my study of God's word, and I was so frustrated because it's that simple. Sometimes we want Christianity to be complex and grandiose and all of these things. And if you actually look at the Word of God, it's simple. A filling of the Spirit is not reserved for a supernatural special class of Christian. It doesn't work that way. It's open to all of us through what? The Word of God. Want to be filled with the Spirit? Read the Word. Submit to what it says. It's that simple. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to invite our kids to come in and join us. Jesus, thanks for your kindness today. 
And Father, I pray now, Lord, that that your word wouldn't fall on deaf ears, God, but that it would encourage your church this morning. God, the simple nature of being filled with the Spirit. God, that we would not get caught in these lies of that it's something else, God. But as we always know, Lord, it comes back to your word and submitting to your word. It's that simple. So God, I pray that you empower us to do that this week. God, give us the resolve to actually read your word this week. God, give us the ability to obey your word very freely and openly, God. And when we do that, Father, we know we will see you move in our lives. That's what we so desperately need and desire. And so, Jesus, I pray now, Lord, as our kids come and share with us that, Father, it's an encouragement to our church. God, that we could laugh, we could smile. Father, we could sing with them. God, we're so thankful for the many adults that invest into our children. God, we know, Lord, that, that, that Father, they're the future. God, every, every week when they're over there learning and growing, Father, that they're, they're memorizing Scripture, that, God, we are investing into the generation that's going to continue the work of seeing help, helping people find and follow Jesus. God, may we always invest well in our kids. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray.